Hello and welcome to Thriving in Intersectionality, a podcast created to help you learn from professionals in the workplace who have multiple intersectional identities, from ethnic minorities, veterans transitioning into the workforce, individuals with disabilities, parents, and so many more. My name is Lola Adeyemo. I am the CEO of EQI Mindset and the founder of the nonprofit Immigrants Incorporate Inc. I work with organizations to build inclusive workplaces. This podcast was built to amplify the voices of leaders and immigrants in the corporate workplace and to give insights and guidance so people can move past their barriers and advance in their professional careers. Through interviews and solo episodes, I'm going to examine this global world of work. I know that you can learn a thing or two from my guests who have a range of experiences and stories to share. Join me as we meet new people who are successfully navigating the corporate space. On this episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Edmund Moore. Dr. Edmund Moore is a recently retired engineer and father, as well as a community leader. The work he accomplished in the materials and manufacturing technology field contributed to the advancement of ceramics, ceramic metrics, composites, and additive manufacturing, and he led the creation of early pathways to mature these technologies for transition. His leadership and perseverance in tackling turbine engine affordability ensured the DOD Versatile Affordable Advanced Turbine Engine Program was able to get developed and transitioned to affordable capabilities for the warfighter jet BBC. As a materials and manufacturing engine lead, he aligned government and industry research plans in order to achieve best value for both military and commercial propulsion system. He is a pillar in the community, a father, and he shared a lot of insights uh, throughout his career journey, as well as advice for young and emerging professionals. Thank you for joining this conversation. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. I am excited to have a conversation today with Edmund Moore. Hi, Edmund. Hello. How are you doing, Lola? I'm good. Thank you very much for chatting with me. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. You have a very impressive career path, (laughs) career journey. (laughs) And that's exactly, you know, what we're here for is um, to get to know you and also gain from all of your wealth of experience and, and insight. So let's dive right in. So okay. who is Edmund Moore? Outside of whatever we'll see everywhere, um, you know, talk about the concept of intersectionality. How do you describe yourself? What are some of the major intersections that you would use to describe yourself? Well, um, I was born in, in uh, Georgia, in a, in a small town called Noonan, Georgia. Grew up in LaGrange, Georgia. Uh, my parents, or came from Alabama and from North Carolina. And they were both educators. And um, my dad was a brick mason. 
as well as he did uh, cost cost analysis and those type of things, and he ended up being a city council member. And for oh, him, okay. he he had a fire department named after him, as well as a couple of the buildings named after him. And he also has a golf event named after him as of this year. Um, oh, so my mother, she was uh, a link, an AKA, and she was very involved in the community. And one of the things I learned from my parents was uh, community involvement, being involved in the community. That's one of the big things that we focus. And my family, uh, the Moore McDonald family, focused on education. That was one of our things. So everyone wanted to be educated. And on the education piece, my uh, one of my elder cousins who has since passed, the story she told about me when she was growing up in Alabama was African-Americans were only allowed to go to the sixth grade in schooling. And she said they wanted to go to school so much that she saw that there was a school called Reform School that she wanted to commit a crime so she could get more schooling because they didn't really know what Reform School was. All they know is they wanted more education. And her dad sent all of his 12 kids out of Alabama to Georgia to prep schools so they can get the education from age 6 to 12. Wow. Okay. So education is really big coming from a family of educators. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I guess that, that would shape your career path then. So what what has your career journey been like? Well, when I was in high school, I always liked to do my own work and always liked to... Uh, for some reason, do things the hard way. And so when it came time for me to go to college, I decided two things. One, I didn't want to go to college an hour away from my parents because they always snuck up on my brother unexpectedly. So I went four hours away. The other thing was I majored in my worst subject in high school, so I would have a challenge, and that majored in physics. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, some people love it. I, I, I wasn't a fan of physics as well, so... Oh, you majored in physics. So how was that? Well, it was my worst subject in high school. So I looked at it as a challenge. And so when I went to college, I said, well, I want to go to medical school, become a medical doctor. And I said, if I take physics, most other people go to medical school, we're going to be going in for biology, chemistry, majors, those type yeah. of things. And I said, physics will stand out. But then I quickly found out I hate blood. So that changed my <laughs> career plans there. You can't be a doctor if you don't like blood. <laughs> nope, nope. So while in school, I found out that if you, if you take physics, you have to take so much math that I said, I might as well take these additional five courses and get a math degree. So I came out of my undergraduate school, which was HBCU at Florida a University with a physics degree and a math degree in four years. And that's how I got started. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Education and uh, education background is all in the DNA. <laughs> <laughs> you take the tough courses and, and come out with extras. Well, I'll tell you, one, one of the funny things about education was my, my dad uh, and the man across the street, they were both educators. And when they were principals or high administrators in the 60s, uh, we had the segregation. But the state of Georgia did not allow blacks, African-Americans to attend the state schools. So they got sent to Ivy League schools. So they went to the schools where the professors actually wrote the books. And they got a better education than their white colleagues. So when they came back, they were better trained than their white colleagues. 
Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll say, so while I was in school at FAMU, I uh, took took advantage of uh, some summer intern jobs, if I want to give them a name. And I worked at Furman National Accelerated Laboratory at, at, in Batavia, Illinois. That was high energy particle physics. And then I went to the next summer, I went to Bell Laboratories in, in Murray Hills, New Jersey. And that's where I got introduced to the field I finally uh, matriculated in, which was called Material Science and Engineering. I'd never heard of it before, but that that uh, summer changed my life. And so when I left FAMU, I went to MIT and majored in Material Science and Engineering. And okay. at the time, I was the only African-American in the department. And so that was an interesting year, <laughs> being in Boston, uh, cold weather, and, uh, yeah. and being the only student of color there. Uh, in a different space coming from, from, from where you were coming from, right? <laughs> from Georgia and Florida, yeah, to Boston. <laughs> and yeah. uh, had some, I did graduate from there, but had some challenges with some of the faculty members there. And uh, afterwards, I transferred to University of Florida, where I finished up my uh, education with a master's degree and a, and a doctorate degree in material science engineering. Okay. So that's what jump-started my career. And while I was in my uh, last two years of graduate school, uh, I got hired by the Air Force as a civilian employee. Okay, okay. How was the entry process, I guess, into the, the corporate workspace? I mean, you had a very impressive background. I can't imagine there was <laughs> any problems there. <laughs> well, the only, at the, up until that point, the only corporate positions I had, if you want to call them corporate, would have been Bell Laboratories, and it would have been uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which I think is now HP. Um, at, at the time, Hewlett Packard, at, at the time, there were only two computer companies. There was uh, uh, IBM, which had 90% of the market, and there was Digital Equipment Corporation, which had the other 10. And the reason that existed was so IBM would not be a monopoly. And I ended up working in a plant in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, that was probably 80% African-American. The plant manager was, a, was an African-American female. I had an African and two uh, uh, African-Americans that, that I reported to. So that was, uh, that was very interesting. I know, and, and I, that was going to be my next question, because just based on the dynamics of your educational background, where you grew up, the schools you went to, I feel like you were exposed to a lot of different audience <laughs> demographics going through oh, school, yeah. and I was just going to ask about getting into the workplace. Did all of that change? But that sounds like it was a great space to come in to get your work experience started. Yeah, that was that was a great space. It was an interesting uh, experience. In the fact, that I reported to three people, and you had to make a decision. You had to learn. Okay, who do you really do the job for? <laughs> so well, it was a learning experience. Yeah. <laughs> what was the next path like, and and what are some of the you know key transitions that you've had to make along the way, till now? I would say the, the biggest transition was the University of Florida. That's where I really settled down into uh, my career uh, with ceramics. Uh, it was polymers. And I sort of went away from metallurgy, which I was doing at MIT. And when I got to the Air Force, 
that's the, that's the area I was working in was ceramic matrix composites and, and monolithic composites for high temperature applications. So that allowed me to touch uh, rockets and uh, jet, jet, jet engines and those type of uh, applications as well. And, and then once I got to the Air Force, I ended up having about five or six different careers in one location. Uh, one of the things. What, what do you I, mean? What well, do you mean? What, what five? Uh, what five, six careers? So when I was at MIT, I met this uh, this man that was in the uh, Sloan Business School, and the Sloan Business School. His name was Old Lester Smithers, and he was actually the director of the lab that I en ended up going into. Uh, African American. You always ask about those uh, people in high position. He was African American, uh, and his classmate was was a guy named Kofi Annan. Have you ever heard of Kofi Annan? Yes. Who used to run the United Nations? That was his classmate. Yes. <laughs> so I was at school at MIT when Kofi Annan was there and Les Smithers was there, and he interviewed me there. And I said, "I'm not going to work for the Air Force because you're not paying any money. You want to? I said, I got a master's degree from MIT, and you want to give me twenty thousand dollars? Heck no! <laughs> I go back to school, <laughs> and that's what I did. That's why I went to the University of Florida. And but then it turns around. When I joined the Air Force and came back, I ran into him again, and there he was running the lab that I was in, and he did something that changed my 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 career. He said, "I want you to run the historical black colleges and universities program for the labs, which really would have been for the Air Force, because I would say ninety five percent of the funding came through our laboratory, and so that got me connected to the historical black colleges and universities." And eventually, the minority institution, which include the Hispanic serving ones as well, as well as the Native uh, American ones, and so that was a career path that that threw me on. Uh, but as an African American engineer, the one thing I always said, "Hey, I want to be technical. I don't want to be throwing these programs." So I was always fighting that to be uh, instead of being typecast as just a person that did programs with uh, with minority institutions. So you got to you got to shape the path for others as well. Um, mm -hmm. Very, I feel like very early on, early in your career. Very early on, right? So I was doing the technical, then I got sort of uh, started working with the historical back college universities, and they gave me my own travel budget so I could travel anywhere, anytime. It was an unlimited budget. <laughs> so, and one thing as a as a uh, employee, you have to learn say. You have to say something like, well, you know, I could be out of town every week if I wanted to. But if I did that, they're going to say, this guy ain't doing any work technically. So, Because <laughs> they're not seeing you. Yep. Right, because you're doing this other stuff. So what I started doing my budget was I started paying for other people to travel in my place. So I expanded okay. the program that way. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's great. So um, if you think about your, I guess, your career journey. So what do you currently do now? Because, I mean, you've kind of, can you walk us through to currently? Because I know <laughs> it's a big well, shift now. Currently, I just retired. I retired back in uh, October. But that journey Congratulations. Went and that was what I wanted you to get to. Because I was like, you, you keep talking about those early years. I'm sure there's a lot that has happened. And you finally at that point where you were able to take a step back. So congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Huge. So the clip notes in between, um, I, I continued to do technical work. I got kicked up to, to a management floor, so I managed our basic uh, research program. 
with the, the funding came from an organization called the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. Um, then I moved from that position and I ran a quick reaction program contract where we had a contract similar to what the White House has. And I was able to get, get things on contract within 48 hours if we needed a program on contract to, to, uh, to deal with something in the field. I left that position and went to, and oh, and I started working with the solid preform fabrication or additive, additive manufacturing with metals in that, in that job. And then I moved to headquarters and I worked sustainment and they threw me back into the HBCU program again. <laughs> Where get away from me. Couldn't get away from it. And I worked with a small business in that one. And that's actually, uh, that was my, that's actually one of the reasons I ended up working with the Career Communications Group, which does the Black Engineer Year Awards conference. And they also do the Women of Color. And because of that, I ended up being on their selection panel for so many awards. And with that information, I was able to nominate and give best practices back into the Air Force so that we could get a bunch of award winners. But after that job, I moved into my, the last job I had was the turbine engine division. And that division deals with all the engines, uh, turbine engines, which uh, your jets, your passenger jets run off of, as well as tanks, as well as ships have turbine engines. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, also did work on the space shuttle. When the, when the space shuttles crashed, we were called in for consultants on that. But after I finished my job, I had two jobs in the uh, turbine engine division. One was the cost analysis. And then the second one, the last job I had, I was the materials and manufacturing expert for all the engines. So. Okay. Yeah. And then, and, and oh, and, and along the way, I was diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. So I was the co-chair for that. And I uh, helped the women start the... Uh, the, the women's version of that as well. So, 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 so I had a variety of things I worked on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I knew there's got to be a lot more than that. Um, I work with a lot of employee resource groups as well. And so, um, you know, that journey, I love seeing professionals get involved with that because it's not just people that are officially working um, mm -hmm. With the title, it's a lot of the people that have different titles but are doing the work within their department. So um, that's exciting to hear. So you said you're retired, but I don't even know what that means uh, because I know you're probably doing a bunch of things now. <laughs> I'm, so I'm doing a bunch of do? things. So one of them, is, we, there's a nonprofit called Parity Inc. It started about 1989. And the purpose of Parity Inc. was to ensure that the African-American community in Dayton had a social and economic parity with the white community by the year 2000. At times, it's called Parity 2000. So that didn't happen. <laughs> so we changed the name to just Parity Inc. And uh, so now I'm the co-chair of that. So before this meeting, I was reading through our 104-page program because we have our 30th annual Top 10 African-American Males Awards Luncheon on next Thursday. <laughs> so, so that's what I was doing before this to make sure everything was right. <laughs> yeah. I know you can't do all that and retired and 
not do anything else. So I can imagine <laughs> they are still very much plugged in. So if you are speaking to early mid career professionals now who, you know, at similar background can relate to you based on, you know, what you have seen and what you see as far as where we are headed in the industry space. What do you think people should be leaning on now? What sort of strategies do you encourage uh, professionals to be um, leveraging right now to make to build thriving careers in, in the workplace? Well, one of the things I always tell people, you, you need to know your job, uh, where, whatever profession you're in. Uh, you need to, to dress pro- appropriately. You need to know how to interact with people, talk to them, and that kind of thing. Uh, you need to have your own internal moral standards as well. Right now, the way the marketplace is going, the, the, the big buzzword now is uh, artificial intelligence so and digital transformation. So uh, those are two areas you really need to stay abreast of. I have a daughter at, at Howard University. She's in the School of Business. And we and sent her a book on, on AI. And she said, she, she texted me and said, Daddy, she said, the person you sent that book about to me is speaking to us and we got to do a report on her so she probably thought that was like wow dad's ahead of the game on this and <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah yeah that's ahead of the game that's it's really going to touch everything it's gonna it's gonna change our way of working uh and everything so i think um being able to see that is a power is a powerful learning at this point in your career. Right. And so coding is another thing. But one of the thing, one of the, the uh one of the biggest things I tell people is you need to know basic math. You need to know civics. That's just, just cuz you're you you're expert in that. <laughs> <laughs> but civics, you know, you need to know how the government works and how decision gets mm-hmm. made. Um but beyond that, you really need to know how to speak and write. So a lot of people can't write anymore and because they are texting, they are not writing. Mm. So that so that that's a lost art in many cases. I'm on an advisory board at Virginia Tech and material science engineering uh, department of advisory board. And we actually have a writing program there to teach all of the undergrad and the grad students how to write reports and write and give presentations and that kind of thing. And that is uh, one of the strengths of that uh, department for the corporate America and the government because they they say we got these young people can come out and they can write. <laughs> right. And and I think that's a very important point that you just made. We need to learn how to write mm-hmm. because now there's so many short codes to writing. There's so many, you know, we're texting short codes. Mm-hmm. Um, Chat GPT is writing and the, the, the art of writing is getting lost. Oh yeah, and the worst one is that when people are talking their phone, you can talk text now. <laughs> so they just talk in the phone and it just types it up and they send it. And it just transcribes it. Yep. And you're like, why is why are you sending me these long texts? Because <laughs> they're just talking. <laughs> oh yeah, because if you are taking time to write, it will probably be shorter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I know we've been talking a lot about reading, um, but writing is actually in itself a, a, an art that we, we're losing and we, we can't afford to. 
um, we still need to be able to communicate clearly to mm-hmm. the target audience. Like, who am I speaking to? What do I want to, them to walk away with? Um, right. And how can I write that right? Also, one of the things I've been, like for my board, Parity Inc., I've been trying, because we're trying to change the community for the better. And so I recommend a book called them The Color of Law. And that's, no, that's a book we all going to read so we actually know why everything in America is the way it is, the inequalities. So, because you don't know where, what's impacted your community, you can't solve the problem. So are you reading it as a community? And what did you say the book was called? It's called The Color of Law. If you look up at The Color of Law, I think it's, okay. it might be Richard Rothstein's Color of Law. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, as I, as an immigrant myself, I know one of the things I always try to to put on is my my learner learner hat <laughs> mm-hmm. in in Black American history space. Like, how can I learn more? Uh, because I wasn't born here or raised here, so it's just a different lens um, that you need to listen to understand. So, if you read if you read that book, it's an easy read. You will find out why the communities are the way they are in America. Here's a, a nice, succinct uh, reason why based on the law. So so talking about the workplace, though, is do you see that as part of the, also what's impacting, you know, corporate corporations, educational institutions, like, you know, we have a lot of um, initiatives going on to get people to get go to school, get more degrees and then coming into the workplace, though, is the workplace ready for everybody? And what are some of the things that people that, you know, that are the onlys in their workplaces, what are some of the things they could be doing or thinking about uh, to advance? I would say it depends. If you come into the federal government, the federal government has a bunch of rules and regulations in place that on the surface will stop, will, will allow people to have opportunities there. If you go to corporate America, a lot of the corporations, particularly the largest ones, may have those have similar rules in place. So they have some guardrails. But when you start getting into the mom and pops and the smaller thing, it, you could run into anything as far as how employees of color or even women are treated. Uh, protections are less. We have unions or, or union protection in the federal government. Other places are right, are right to work. Uh, organizations which mean you can be fired for any reason without cause it's a right in the right to work state so that's why i say it's a, it's a little different depends on what situation you're coming into is there some is there, are there some things that have helped you personally along the way um get to where you are now uh which is thriving you know thriving you are thriving in the workplace i've survived the workplace <laughs> i've accomplished so bad. much <laughs> And you're still giving back, right? So are there some of the things that helped you that you can recommend to people now um, that is still very much applicable? One of the things I, one of the things I tell, especially young and mid-level people is and get a mentor. Not just one mentor, get a series of mentors, a team of mentors. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've had mentors who were not professionals in, in my area but they had a vast array of experiences in, a, in, in other areas that were non-technical, maybe in the, in the, in the, in the medical field or, or, or social services field, that they could give me a, a guidance on, on, on issues that even affected my technical field. 
that was uh, just good knowledge. When you, when, as, as you were being mentored, find someone younger to, to help bring them both as well, to mentor them as well. But nothing beats a champion. And the champions are those people that uh, go out and speak on your behalf. And uh, I'll say that the John, the Baptist of the world, uh, but for those who know the Bible, they go out and they beat the path and say, hey, Edmund is a good person. You ought to give him a chance at this position. I think he'd be good at that. And then that way you can get opportunities that you don't necessarily know about or you don't even know you should be going after. And I can truly say one of the men we're honoring at our top 10 uh, uh, African-American Awards uh, luncheon next Thursday, he behind the scenes was throwing my name out. And that's why I'm on a lot of the boards and committees and stuff in the organizations that I'm in on now. But I didn't know he was doing that. Yeah, and yeah. and I think the that's that's the also related to how well we let people see us, how well we show up and let people know. Because people can't promote us if they don't know about us. Right? Mm-hmm. Or if they don't see what we're doing. And and I think a lot of people miss that opportunity by just focusing on doing our job in silence or in silo, right? Make sure people know what you are about. You right. know, whatever language you want to call it, networking or socializing, let people know you, not just your title. <laughs> so I, have, I, have a good, I have a good friend named, named Joseph Gordon. And what Joseph Gordon told me probably over 15 years ago, he said, the problem with you is you sit at your desk and you do all this work. Nobody knows you. You need to get from your desk and walk around. And so I took that advice. And then my supervisor and everybody was saying, Everybody knows you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That really was the intention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but it got me. But it got me more work though, because I became the uh, the president of the golf league for the organization. So then I got to know everybody in the golf league and even the contractors, and I got to golf with them as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think some people that happens naturally for them. Some people <clears throat> need more effort and more intention behind it. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, grateful for the kind of people that push us to do that. <laughs> Let people know you. <laughs> exactly. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we kind of wrap up? Um, I really appreciate you coming to talk to us about your career path and, and some of the strategies and advice for um, younger people still in the workforce <laughs> to, to, to get ahead to move, not just getting in, uh, because a big part of the conversations we have here is that we recognize that it's not just about getting a degree and getting in. There's a lot more that needs to happen if you want to lead, if you want to be a part of, you know, change and solution within your workplace. So um, anything else you want to add before we kind of wrap up with my final question? So one of the big things I, w- I tell people to do, they need to focus on all aspects of their health. They need to focus on their brain health, which is their mental health their physical health, as well as their financial health, mm-hmm. as well as their spiritual health. If, if you have those four in uh, in alignment, get those in alignment, you, you have a better career, a better life. That's good. Yeah. Spiritual health, mental health, physical health, uh, brain health. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we look at, I, I was a member of the, uh, the Montgomery County Alcohol, Drug Addiction, Mental Health Services Board. And the thing we always advocated was that uh, physical health is equal to brain health or mental health. Yeah. Got to take care of that mind. (laughs) Take care of that mind. (laughs) So what are you up to these days? 
what is what does retirement mean? Well, retirement has been pretty interesting. Uh, I, I have two daughters in college. Uh, one's a freshman at Howard University School of Business, and she's making me jealous because she's going to get to go to South Africa for 11 days to school the center to South Africa to visit five countries. I'm like, wow, that never happened when I was in college. My other daughter is in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and she, she wanted to be an actress, but she became a doula to help women have babies. Because one of the things, yeah. with the, particularly with, uh, with African-American or black women, is we have the worst outcomes for mothers and for babies in childbirth. So yes, that's, that's what she jumped into. And now she's uh, working for a hospital at doing that. And she's looking to go back to school in psychology. And she may decide to be a nurse and a midwife. We shall see where her future goes. Uh, other than that, like I said, in retirement, just been busy. I've never would have thought I would have been so busy in retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and I think it just also speaks into continuing to doing what we love. It's Then it's not, if, if we build our jobs and our lives around doing what we love, retirement, okay, just picking on something else and maybe less less time <laughs> oh, yeah. doing stuff. Uh, but you're never going to really come to a complete stop. Um, so congratulations. Well, thank you. I will say the last thing about retirement, I complained to my brother a few days ago about how busy I was. And he said, that's a blessing. He said, you should be glad you have a lot to do in retirement. He said, most people don't have anything to do. So consider that a blessing. I had to say, I guess you're right. Yeah. And that you're <laughs> healthy. Yeah. Right? Yep. Just because that's the another side of these is people working until their physical health deteriorates and then having to retire because you can't walk. Um, I think it's a blessing to retire when, you know, your mind, your body is still fit enough to find something else to do and keep busy. A month after I retired, two, two of my co-workers at work who had not retired died on the job. They never got to retire. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I tell people, that's why I retired. The last thing I want to do is die on the job. <laughs> and, and also, retire. yeah, 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 that's sad. But I also feel like it's not, you know, there's, there's there's a reason where we talk about finding joy in the work that you do, finding joy in your day-to-day, -day, whether you work in corporate America, whether you work in, as an entrepreneur, find joy in what you do. You don't save up your joy for when you retire. You know, right. waiting to retire before you find joy, before you travel, before you enjoy your life um, is assuming you know when anything is going to happen or how much, how long you have to live. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, now I'm getting well, ready to travel to Jamaica and do some other travel. And now I have time to uh, go on the road and sell the three books I wrote while I was working. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Congratulations. So you have three published well, books? I have three published books that I wrote between uh, 2019 and 2022. My supervisor said, how do you oh, wow. find time to what do all this? What are the books this? about? I know. Um, while you first, were working, you didn't wait until retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I wait to retirement to write a book? <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so tell us what the books are about. So my first book was called uh, With the Father's Love, 52 Weekly Letters to My Beloved Daughters. And that book happened when I was going through a divorce. 
in 2015. And I wanted my daughters to know that I loved them. So I wrote them a letter every week for 52 weeks on various topics. And then I told them I was going to publish it into a book for them, which I did uh, just for them. And I said, we just have three copies. But then people in my Sunday school class found out what I did. And they said, oh, you got to share this. So then I had to write another version of the, that was for the public. So that's where that book oh, came wow. from. The, oh, next, wow. that's cool. the next book was called Village Wisdom for Our Youth. And that was, to, that was to support the Parody Inc. Top 10 African-American Males Awards luncheon. Miller COVID. We can't have 500 people in a room. So I said, how can we get people to still donate and that kind of thing? I said, let's write a book. I'll write a book. And so I asked people in the community to give me tidbits of wisdom. And uh, they gave me tidbits of wisdom. I collected them, put them into categories, uh, wrote a book, got the young people to suggest what the covers would be on the book. So the young folks, we're talking the teens to probably to age 20, they helped design the book. And they said, whatever you do, don't put your picture in that book in a suit and a tie. They said, if we see that, we are not buying that book. <laughs> so I took their advice, wrote the, wrote the book, All Proceeds Go to Parody Inc. And what amazed me about the book is this, I'm amazed at how people love the book. People keep asking about that book more than anything else. And the third book I wrote was a book called Financial Freedom, Doing Nothing is an Option. And if you do nothing, you ain't going to have nothing. But that was the title of the book. <laughs> That's my tagline, doing nothing is an option. Because it is it's an option. option. Yep. It's the option Just that most know. people choose. <laughs> <laughs> it's an option. You, you get to choose. It's your choice. Yeah. Um, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, <laughs> thank you for sharing your your path. And also, um, I think some of the things I walked away is just we don't wait for the finish line. You know, mm -hmm. you did all of the writing, um, some of it emerging from just the situation happening around, right? During the pandemic, right. during your personal uh, situation, right? Being Responding to the season we are in and creating solutions for that season. And, and sometimes it goes further than we ever expected to go. So right. thank you for, for modeling that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for the, uh, the invite to the podcast. Thanks for the invite to the podcast. I really oh, enjoyed no my time with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, we got to, to chat. And uh, yeah, and congratulations on all of your success. And um, I hope you can And if I make it to San Diego, I will send you a note. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. I, I would love to meet people in real life. I always love to connect with people, uh, my guests and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of my connections are mostly virtual, but whenever I do travel, I, I love to find people that I've worked with, I've had conversations right. with. So I'm going to ask you my final question that I always end this conversation with because I like food and because food breaks the highs. So if you were to share a meal with your coworkers, meal, snack, food, what would you choose and why did you choose that? Share a meal. Huh. That's a good question. A meal, a snack, a food, fruits. One of the, the healthy fruits that we used to grow outside of my dad's uh, dad and mother's window in LaGrange, Georgia, was a pomegranate tree. Mm. So I would share a pomegranate with them because I could pull it apart and bring out the little seeds and I could give them, give them to everybody and share with them. And it's, a, it's a nice, sweet fruit. And... 
One has the option that can eat the seed or they can swallow the seed. <laughs> Whatever they feel comfortable with. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And I, and I mean, you could just say pomegranate, but part of the reason why I ask why is because some of the things that you say has significant meaning to you in mm. a different way. So thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. And again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for a successful career with a lot of investment in, in, in young professionals um, and in the community as well. And I hope, you know, we'll, we'll all walk away with some of, some of the lessons that we can follow along there, connecting with community. And I think mentoring has also um, come up a lot. So I'm, I'm glad you touched on that and you shared that as part of uh, your story and your journey as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Lola Adeyemo, for these important conversations about the global world of work. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to share our weekly episodes with your communities and co-workers. For more resources and upcoming events, visit our website, www.thrivinginintersectionality.com and join our LinkedIn group, Thriving in Intersectionality. Additional links and resources are listed in the show notes of this episode. Thank you.